Dr. Wolf reviewed a number of papers specifically relevant to the use of chemotherapy in various stages of breast cancer, and he began by discussing a paper by Dr. Jenny Chang et al., looking at intratumoral markers of response to therapy. This was a paper which is a follow-up on a long series of studies that Jenny and the Baylor group have done to try to identify patterns or signatures that could help predict which patients would ultimately have an optimal response. And what they did this time was they had about 97 patients who had undergone core biopsies prior to receiving neoadjuvant chemotherapy of docetaxel at usual doses of 100 milligrams per meter square every three weeks. And they ultimately had the clinical response data in about 74% of these patients and were able to obtain enough RNA for gene expression profile in about 82% of these patients. And they use as the primary endpoint for their analysis on clinical complete response by resist. And that in itself raises a challenge, which is how do you define optimal response? And there is a huge controversy in the literature of whether clinical parameters can be used or whether you need to use pathologic complete response, which is what we have learned from large data sets such as the NSABP. But in any case, they use clinical response data as the parameter, and they were able ultimately to develop a correlation between gene expression and clinical response using a set of 14 genes, which for the most part actually seem to correlate quite well with the Oncotype DX assay. So this could to some extent be another assessment of the Oncotype DX in the preoperative setting, which had already been done by Luca Jani and was published in the JCO not too long ago, showing that patients with a high recurrence score were actually the patients where you were able to identify a higher chance of having a pathologic complete response. In this case, Jenny and her colleagues did not use pathologic complete response, but in reality used a clinical response as their endpoint. Is there any reason to think that this would be specific to docetaxel, or do you think it might just be to chemotherapy? It could be to chemotherapy. It's unclear whether there will be specific signatures that will identify specific drugs. The Jani study used intracyclines primarily, and now the study in the U.S. using docetaxel with a different endpoint, not pathological complete response, but also potentially using a similar gene signature. Anything coming down the pike in terms of you know, other predictors to chemotherapy? The NSABP is now hopefully going to launch their neoadjuvant study in HER2 negative patients. It's going to look at docetaxel, docetaxel with capecitabine or with gemcitabine, plus or minus bevacizumab. Any suggestion from this study or any similar ones of specific things that could be looked for in terms of predicting response to different regimens? I think what everybody is trying to do at this point is to identify optimal parameters that ultimately will predict for pathologic complete response, which is the best endpoint we have at this point. One of the key issues that some of these studies are not addressing is whether there are ways where you can identify early on which are the patients that are most likely to have a pathologic complete response or an optimal response, however you define it. And some of the studies, particularly smaller institution studies, are looking at early markers such as imaging or specific early parameters with repeat biopsies, trying to identify the optimal patients. But perhaps more important is would be to try to identify which patients are not likely 
to have the desired response with the treatment that you have initiated. And therefore, these are patients that you would consider making a switch to other therapies, perhaps akin to what can be done in metastatic disease or circulating tumor cells. The key issue with any of these attempts is the question of whether a switch to another therapy would be useful in terms of improving the outcome for these patients. But I think the bottom line is that we don't have yet the optimal signatures. Different groups are trying to validate their own signatures in large studies, and I think it will be a while. Okay. The next paper I wanted to ask you about was presented by High Muss, looking at the toxicity of adjuvant chemotherapy in older versus younger patients. This was an analysis of the CALGB database where they had toxicity data available for approximately 6,100 patients that had been enrolled in three CALGB randomized clinical trials for node positive breast cancer, including 8541, which compared three dose schedules of CAF, 9344, which asked the question of the addition of paclitaxel to AC, in 9741, which asked the question of AC followed by paclitaxel, dose dance versus every three weeks. And they were looking into toxicity issues in elderly patients. And what is striking, although something that we have known for a while, is how poorly represented the elderly population truly is, where you have patients over the age of 65 only representing 7% of these patients in these three studies, and patients over the age of 70 only about 3% or so. Keep in mind that the median age of breast cancer in the U.S. is approximately age 65, but once again, the median age of patients going on clinical trials in the early 50s or so. And so what they did see was that At least in the abstract initially, in multivariate analysis, older patients were significantly more likely to have neutropenia with a total white count of less than 1,000, also having grade 4 hematologic toxicity or to discontinue therapy. But for the most part, therapy was well tolerated in these individuals. And the one caveat of this analysis was a small exploratory analysis regarding the risk of developing acute myelogenous leukemia or myelodysplastic syndrome. Overall, there were about 0.6% of all patients, or 35 out of 6,100 patients, that develop acute myelogenous leukemia. What is interesting is that there was some over-representation of the age group 65 and older with about 8 patients compared to about 11 patients younger than age 50 and about 16 patients ages 51 to 64. Whether this is confounded by age and other risk factors to the development of AML and MDS is unclear, but this raises the question of whether these patients are at an increased risk. And also, approximately 20 of these 35 patients had received growth factor support. So I think one has to be very cautious about these data, but it does raise some concerns about secondary complications such as hematologic malignancies and also raises questions about whether there are potentially better or not necessarily better but safer regimens that could be used in this patient population. And that's when a study that is actually being conducted by HIMAS and the intergroup CLGB49907 asking the question of capecitabine versus classic CMF or AC may ultimately identify a regimen that could be equally effective with less toxicities. 
I'm curious if that trial shows that capecitabine is equivalent in terms of anti-tumor effect in this population. Do you think that it would be widely utilized in the elderly? And do you think it would also maybe be utilized in younger patients who maybe are being treated with AC? I think the latter could happen. We have to be cautious, as usual, about trying to extrapolate results from one specific study to another patient population for which the study was not designed to answer these questions. But for the most part, if we're talking about safety issues, at this point, there is no clear evidence that different chemotherapies, when you adjust age in relation to pathology parameters, there's no specific evidence that would suggest that chemotherapy effects are going to be different simply on the basis of age once you adjust for tumor grade, ER, etc. So I think that that could potentially happen. I want to ask you about another study that was presented at ASCO, this time in metastatic disease by the BCRG007, one of the most discussed papers, I think, looking at trastuzumab with docetaxel, with or without carboplatin. Can you comment on that? So this was a study by John Forbes and colleague. It was actually a relatively small study with about 260 patients with HER2 positive, defined by FISH assay, metastatic breast cancer, who were then randomized to receive TH, so trastuzumab with docetaxel at a dose of 100 milligrams per meter square, or TCH regimen using essentially the same doses that were used in the BCIRG006 adjuvant trial with docetaxel at a dose of 75 milligrams per meter square and carboplatin at an AUC of 6. The study had as a primary endpoint time to tumor progression and had an ambitious statistical design trying to detect a 50% improvement in medium time to progression between the two arms with a 80% power and 0.05 significance simply by the addition of carboplatin to a TH regimen, so both arms receiving trastuzumab. And essentially, the study did not show any significant difference between the two arms with a medium time to tumor progression of about 11 months or so, a similar response rate of about 70% to duration response of about 10 months, and clinical benefit of about 67% or so. There was some increase in toxicity with the addition of carboplatin, and there were actually two patients who died of sepsis in the CCH arm. But ultimately, the results were the same. And there was a lot of discussion of why this potentially was a difference was not observed with the addition of carboplatin to docetaxel trastuzumab when it had been potentially seen when using paclitaxel. But I'm not sure that that's the most important message from this study. I think the key issue in this study is that Patients treated with trastuzumab are doing very well with metastatic disease, and it is unclear whether there is a true optimal combination with chemotherapy that would significantly improve on the already good results that are being seen with trastuzumab. The other thing to keep in mind is that this was a very small study. And so this was not designed as an equivalency trial. This was designed as a trial to identify superiority, a 50% improvement. So I don't think we can say that these two regimens are equivalent. What we can say is that TCH with docetaxel is not superior to TH. 
And once again, perhaps the issue of the use of sequential chemotherapies versus combination chemotherapy may come into play in patients with metastatic disease. Granted that all the data we have regarding those issues are in patients who were not treated with trastuzumab. But I'm not sure that at this point anything is learned as far as the addition. And perhaps the other question, the other issue that could be mentioned is that some may question whether these data have any relevance to the adjuvant trial, to the BCI or G006. And I would caution against any attempts to try to extrapolate these data to what was seen in the adjuvant trial where TCH was shown to offer clinical benefit as one of the two arms with trastuzumab in that study when compared with the standard of AC followed by docetaxel. Again, this is a small study, and I don't think we should make much of it at this point. I want to ask you about another doublet of papers that were presented together that I thought were very interesting, which was the two studies, one by Giordano and the other by Shepard, looking at cardiac effects of anthracyclines. These were fascinating papers, and they once again remind us that we could be running into significant issues associated with the price of success. Patients are increasingly doing better with early-stage breast cancer, surviving their disease. But we could begin to see what the pediatric oncologists have seen a long time ago, which is late sequelas associated with the therapies that they used. In this case, I think it has been long recognized the potential for cardiac toxicity associated with intracycline in terms of long-term cardiac toxicity. Several years ago, the Milan group showed evidence of diastolic dysfunction by echocardiogram in patients that had been randomized to epirubicin in the adjuvant setting versus CMF. And these were patients that were free of breast cancer recurrence and completely asymptomatic and had asymptomatic diastolic dysfunction. So what these two studies showed, the first one was a study by the MD Anderson group by Sharon Giordano and colleagues looking at a population-based observational study using the Sears Medicare linked database, including patients ages 66 to 90 who had been diagnosed with breast cancer in the mid-1990s, had no other malignancies and no history of CHF. And they looked into the risk of having a diagnosis of CHF on the basis of having an ICD-9 code for CHF. They divided the patients in two groups, ages 66 to 70 and 71 to 90, and the mean age for all of these patients was about 75. The mean follow-up was about 68 months. And it became clear from their initial analysis that older patients were likely to have more comorbidities, were also likely to receive less chemotherapy, and the patients that were treated with an intracycline were patients with a high-risk tumor. So obviously you have some bias in your population here. And so when they looked into the population of patients ages 66 to 70, looking at the percentage of patients that were free of congestive heart failure at 5 or 10 years, they separated the patients in three groups. One was a group of patients treated with antracyclines. The other one was a group of patients treated with a non-antracycline chemotherapy regimen. And the other one was a group of patients not treated with chemotherapy at all, so that would be the control group. And what was striking at 10 years was that the percentage of patients that were free of congestive heart failure in the individuals not treated with chemotherapy was 73%. In the chemotherapy group not treated with an intracycline was 74%. 
so similar in terms of patients free of CHF, while in the patients triggered with anitracycline, the chances of being free of CHF was 61%, so an absolute difference of about 12-13%. This was further investigated with a Cox multivariate analysis showing a hazard rate for CHF comparing intracycline chemotherapy versus the other groups of 1.38, which was statistically significant. And when they looked into individual comorbidities, clearly patients with a history of hypertension, diabetes mellitus, coronary artery disease, or peripheral vascular disease had a significantly increased risk of developing CHF. They also looked into the other patient group, ages 71 to 90, and they did not see a difference in terms of CHF when comparing the intracycline versus the non-intracycline chemotherapies and the no-chemotherapy groups. But they don't have sufficient data from this SEER Medicare evaluation to understand whether there was selection bias in what patients those were and whether these patients potentially could have received lower doses of chemotherapy, which we know has been an issue over the years. The second paper, which was also of interest, was cardiac assessment data from the NCIC-MA5 study, which was most recently updated in the JCO last year, a study comparing CEF, those intense, using epirubicin, 60 milligrams per meter square, day one and day eight, versus CMF. And this was a study in patients who were pre- and perimenopausal with node-positive breast cancer. And we have the 10-year follow-up showing an improvement in both relapse-free survival and overall survival. This was a study where patients who had received a mastectomy were not allowed to receive post-mastectomy radiation therapy, which could potentially be a confounding factor. And they had very careful monitoring of left ventricular ejection fraction in both arms done at baseline at 6 months, 12 months, 36 months, and 60 months. Although the compliance of LVEF measurement, which was very good early on, at 100% was significantly decreased to about 40% of the patients at 60 months, which makes you wonder about the potential for selection bias. The patients doing well are the ones most likely to show up for a study. But in any case, what was quite interesting was to see a substantial difference in LVEF at 60 months, which showed in the patients treated with epirubicin approximately 5% with a greater than 20% decrease in ejection fraction compared to only about 1% in the patients treated with CMF. And for the subgroup, for the decrease between 10 and 20%, from baseline, 20% in the CEF versus 8.3% in the CMF. So ultimately, in the CEF group, approximately 25% of patients with a drop of greater than 10% compared to about 9% in the CMF group. Also, they looked into the percentage of patients that had a drop in ejection fraction below 50%. And these, for the most part, were asymptomatic patients. And 17% of the patients in the CEF group had a drop below 50% compared to just 2% in the CMF group. Again, concerns about the possibility of bias, which actually could potentially have favored the CMF group if you felt that the patients who were potentially sicker may not have come for the 60-month follow-up where 40% of the patients did not get tested. When you look at congestive heart failure, the rates were relatively small in the group 
group with a drop of EF greater than 20%. There were four patients in the CEF group versus no patients in the CMF group. There was a very interesting discussion led by Richard Steingart, a cardiologist at Sloan Kettering, reminding all of us that, in fact, congestive heart failure is the leading diagnosis in older patients, especially in women having a 2.3% risk of having CHF for women ages 50 to 65, 4.1% risk of having CHF for those age groups 65 to 74, and almost 11% of women over the age of 75 a risk of having a diagnosis of CHF. So once again, reminding us of the importance that if we are going to be considering chemotherapy in older women, how crucial it is to be able to identify chemotherapy regimens that may avoid potentially cardiotoxic drugs, in this case, anthracyclines, and whether it would be drugs like capsagabine or potentially taxanes as being tested in two separate CALGB studies. Those are very important questions. The other thing that was mentioned is our tendency to focus on systolic function, which is something that we can quite well measure with a number using a MUGA scan or an echocardiogram. And even for cardiologists, we're more comfortable doing that assessment. And we don't have good measures for diastolic dysfunction. And the reason why this is important to remember is that Diastolic dysfunction is commonly how older women present with CHF, in part because the main cause of CHF in women is hypertension. And two-thirds of the women ultimately presenting with congestive heart failure will have a normal ejection fraction. So if anything, we could potentially be underestimating the risk of patients developing chemotherapy-induced complications from the drugs. Putting this all together, how has this affected Let's say the way you counsel a woman who's considering anthracycline-based adjuvant chemotherapy in terms of what you would say to her based on different ages, different risk factors in terms of the risk of having a cardiac dysfunction, has it changed at all since ASCO? I'm still trying to absorb all this information. I have, over the years, been quite concerned about the potential risks associated with ventracycline. Some of the studies I've been involved with at ECOG looking at liposomal formulations of doxorubicins, especially in combination with trastuzumab, not showing any clinically meaningful worsening in the risk of developing cardiac dysfunction. I think the main issue remains for the patients with VR, especially for the patients with VR negative disease, where chemotherapy is the most important treatment we will give them. So it is something that I frequently discuss with patients. I think over the years we now have databases on the actual risk of developing CHF and cardiac dysfunction with the use of conventional regimens such as AC. So it is something that I clearly discuss with patients, but it hasn't yet been enough to make me move away from using a regimen such as AC in the adjuvant setting. But it is, again, clear that we do need to see the results of several ongoing studies that may allow us to potentially move away from intracyclines in the adjuvant setting. So a 65-year-old woman, normal ejection fraction, history of hypertension, well-controlled with medication, SU, what's the chance that these four cycles of AC is going to cause cardiac damage that will be clinically relevant? I think my guess, keeping in mind that we don't have a lot of 65-year-old women going into these adjuvant trials, which enrolled a patient population at least 10 years younger, 
I would guess that in this patient, the risk of developing CHF could be as high as 3 or 4%. And I think a lot of it would depend on other markers of the tumor to help me first and foremost make a decision, am I going to consider using chemotherapy for this patient or is it someone who can be treated with endocrine therapy alone? And if I make a decision that chemotherapy is important for various reasons, then one potential option going back 30 years would be potentially using CMF if there are features that would make you nervous about using an intracycline. I wanted to ask you about the next two papers sort of together. Both were presented sequentially. One was a trial looking at docetaxel, either given concurrently or sequentially to anthracycline-based adjuvant therapy. And the other one was a sequential epirubicin docetaxel CMF as adjuvant therapy. Can you talk about those two papers? So these were two papers, the first one by an Italian group and the second one by the Breast International Group. The Italian group, or TAXIT 216 multicenter phase 3 study, was a study in patients with node positive disease that were randomized to receive epirubicin at a dose of 120 per meter square every 21 days for four cycles, followed by an IV formulation of CMF day one and day eight for four cycles versus the investigational arm with the addition of docetaxel, so in this case epirubicin followed by docetaxel at a dose of 100 per meter square for four cycles every 21 days, and then CMF. And this was a study that ultimately had its primary endpoints, disease-free survival and secondary endpoints, tolerability and overall survival. And it was designed to identify a 30% improvement in disease-free survival. And what it did observe ultimately with analysis including about 480 patients in each study with a median follow-up of 53 months was uh, disease-free survival improvement at 67% in the control arm of E followed by CMF versus 74% in the investigational arm E followed by T followed by CMF with a hazard ratio of about 0.8, which was not statistically significant, but once they adjusted by predefined balancing factors, the hazard rate was 0.78, and that showed a modest improvement with a p-value of 0.05. The other study, which has a slightly more complicated design, was presented by John Crown on behalf of the Press International Group, was the Big 298 study, which was a study with two control arms, arm 1A, which was an intracycline for four cycles, followed by CMF for three cycles, a la Bonadonna. And then arm 1B, which was the other control arm, was AC, so an intracycline and cyclophosphamide, again, for four cycles, followed by CMF for three cycles. And then the two investigation arms were called arms 2 and 3. Arm 2 was a sequential addition of docetaxel, allowing full doses of the intracycline of doxorubicin at 75 milligrams per meter square for three doses, followed by docetaxel at 100 milligrams per meter square for three doses, followed by CMF for three doses. And then the other investigational arm, which was arm three, was the AT given in combination, but because of that, forcing the use of lower doses, reducing the dose of doxorubicin from 75 to 50, and docetaxel from 100 to 75, and giving four cycles of the AT combination followed by CMF. 
ultimately, there was the same total dose of doxorubicin and docetaxel in these two investigational arms. So the primary endpoint was event-free survival, and the study initially had been designed to have two interim analyses at 405 and 110 events, but ultimately, once again, we see patients doing better, and therefore the event rate was lower than originally planned, and therefore the study was amended so that the main analysis would happen at 810 events, which originally would have been an interim analysis, or at five years, and the analysis was ultimately done at five years. So the primary comparison would be a comparison of the two taxane arms, the two docetaxel arms with the intracycline arms A or AC. And it did show a hazard rate of 0.86 with a confidence interval with the upper limit at 1, show a p-value of 0.051. And then there were two original secondary endpoints. One was testing the sequential arm of doxorubicin followed by docetaxel followed by CMF with the intracycline arm A followed by CMF without the docetaxel in the middle. And that showed an event-free survival improvement with a hazard rate of 0.79 and a p-value of 0.035. So clearly a event-free survival benefit when using the taxane in sequence allowing full doses. When they looked at the combination of AT versus AC, followed by CMF, in this case being obliged to reduce the dose of adriamycin and taxane compared to what would have been given in the sequence. The hazard rate was now 0.93, and this was not statistically significant. And then they did another analysis, another secondary analysis, which was not originally planned, which was actually looking at the comparison between the two investigational docetaxel arms, so the A followed by T versus the AT. And in this case, AT turned out to be the better arm with a hazard rate for event-free survival of 0.83 and a p-value of 0.047, bordering, again, the upper limit of the confidence interval at 1. But this was not a planned analysis. But I think the big lesson from this study comes in the heels of all the other taxane studies that have been done over the years. CLGB9344, the NSABPB28 study, the Paxil-1 study, studies by the GATECOM group, MD Anderson and others, showing a clinical benefit from the addition of taxanes. And in this specific study, in the big 298 trial, confirming the Norton-Simon hypothesis of the importance of using full doses of therapy in a sequential fashion and avoiding the problems associated with combining chemotherapy drugs, forcing you to reduce the dose and therefore reducing the benefit, which was clearly observed in the study. And I guess, you know, Larry Norton was the one who did the discussion of these two papers. But one of the things I was thinking about as he was talking is, then why does TAC seem to work? Since there you are combining the adriamycin and the taxotere. I mean, I guess we don't have a comparison of TAC, although we will, I think, versus AC followed by docetaxel, where you can use a higher dose of therapy. But TAC is a commonly utilized regimen. It seems to fly in the face of these types of data. 
it could well be why would tech have worked when compared to fact. Right. It, in that specific case, it could be perhaps related to the number of cycles that were given. The dose of docetaxel in the tech study was at 75. And in combination with doxorubicin, both drugs were used for six cycles. So in this case, it could potentially be an issue of duration of therapy. Yeah, I mean, I guess actually when you think about it, the issue of TAC being better than FAC is one thing. That simply could be the addition of the taxane. But I guess what we don't know is whether or not TAC would be as effective as AC followed by docetaxel. We don't. And I think we have to be very cautious whenever we try to make comparison between the two regimens. We know very well that TAC is potentially more toxic, especially when not given without a growth factor, as it was done in the study that was published in the New England Journal, but not how it is given nowadays. And hopefully we will derive some answers from the NSABP B38 study, which is a very simple study, but it is a pragmatic study, which is comparing TAC with similar doses that were used in the B30 study with AC followed by paclitaxel dose dense, with AC followed by paclitaxel gemcitabine dose dense. What do you think that's going to show? My guess is most likely it will show that the two arms are similar. I'm not sure if the study is powered to determine equivalency, but I think it will show a similar outcome. Do you think that, you know, we need to sort of move on here in terms of trying to squeeze out every drop out of chemotherapy? And I know there's a lot of excitement with biologics, but do you think that, you know, we've talked about looking inside the tumor, we've talked about changing the schedule. How much more mileage do you think we can get out of adjuvant chemotherapy? I think it is fascinating for anybody who began to go to ASCO in the late 1990s. And I remember very well the last time we were in Atlanta in 1998. The plenary session of ASCO was dominated by the high-dose chemotherapy. And here we are several years later when high-dose chemotherapy has completely moved on. We had in the early 2000s a generation of studies, especially in metastatic disease, comparing alphabet soup A versus alphabet soup B. And now, a few years later, we have the full realization that a lot of these studies, we were treating everybody together, assuming that the average benefit would be similar for all patient groups, completely ignoring the heterogeneity of breast cancer, which we now truly know is not just one disease. So the era of these studies in unselected patients is truly gone. The other interesting aspect, which has been discussed by many before, is the realization that potentially a lot of the differential effects in terms of benefit that we have seen with variations of chemotherapy regimens could potentially be explained a lot by HER2. And where in patients with HER2 positive disease would potentially be the patients that would derive the greatest benefit from taxanes and the greatest benefit from intracyclines. But now that all of these patients have essentially been removed from your average chemotherapy regimen as they all receive intrastuzumab, for the HER2 negative patients, it is completely unclear whether the different regimens with different schedules of intracyclines and taxanes will truly be different. And I guess the other issue is about ER. Absolutely. And it is fascinating to realize that it's been almost 28 years since Mark Lippman published in, I believe it was in the New England Journal of Medicine, a very small paper, but very clearly showing that patients with ER-positive disease appear to derive a significant smaller benefit from chemotherapy compared to patients with ER-negative disease. 
And here we are 28 years later coming back full circle and still running into issues of inadequate testing. Another paper I want to ask you about was presented by Dan Hayes an analysis from the CALGB 9344 study looking at HER2. Can you talk about that? So the study presented by the CLGB on behalf of the intergroup, it's a fascinating example of the importance of properly collecting tissue specimens over the years and how fruitful subsequent explorations can be. And I think we have several examples nowadays, one of them being the development and the subsequent validation of the Oncotype DX using the NSABP database. CLGB 9344, which was a study looking into both those escalation of doxorubicin, as well as the addition of paclitaxel versus not, was a study where 92% of the patients had blocks collected in the CLGB pathology office, allowing these kinds of studies. And ultimately, for this analysis that was presented by Dan Hayes, the hypothesis was that HER2 could predict a benefit from a higher dose of doxorubicin and that it could potentially predict the benefit from docetaxel, remembering that in the original analysis there was absolutely no benefit from escalating the dose of doxorubicin above 60 milligrams per meter square. There was also the hypothesis that HER2 could refine an observed interaction of paclitaxel with estrogen receptor. So what they did in this exploratory analysis was to divide the available blocks, about 2,800 blocks, in four sets. And for this analysis, they used two of the sets with 750 patients in each. And these patients were representative of the population at large in terms of patient and tumor characteristics. So they initially developed a hypothesis using set one, and if they were able to observe any visual difference between the two groups with HER2 positive versus HER2 negative disease in terms of benefits from higher doses of intracyclines or taxins, then they would go on and validate that in the second set. So very early, they noted that there was absolutely no difference observed with higher doses of doxorubicin in the HER2 positive versus the HER2 negative, but there was a visual difference in set one for benefits from taxane in the HER2 positive patients. So they did a subsequent evaluation of the second set And they also performed a HER2 evaluation using three separate assays for HER2, and that's a separate issue of its own in terms of the accuracy and reproducibility of HER2 testing. But when they looked into immunohistochemistry using two separate assays, CB11 and the Hercept test by DACO, and FISH using the PEF-Vision assay, they consistently saw an improvement in disease-free survival when testing HER2 with three separate assays, two immunohistochemistry assays, and one using FISH with the PEF-Vision assay. They also looked into a three-way interaction, looking also for ER along with HER2 and benefits from paclitaxel. And this was, at best, an exploratory analysis that it is quite unstable in nature for obvious reasons. And what they did observe was that in the subgroup of patients with ER-positive HER2-negative disease, a benefit from the additional paclitaxel was not present. And this subgroup represented about 50% of the patients. This, at most, is an exploratory analysis. And we should also caution 
against making definitive recommendations as far as the lack of benefit from the addition of paclitaxel in patients referred to negative disease because the visual inspection of the two groups, paclitaxel versus not in the HER2 negative patients, you do see a visual separation of the curves. So at this point, what's happening, the CILGB is now going into sets number three and four, the remaining 1,400, 1,500 patients from the study, and also are planning a formal analysis using tissue sets from other studies so that you can truly look into a proper validation of these data. The last thing I want to ask you about is, again, another doublet of papers, this time looking at the issue of TOPO2 as a predictor response to therapy, one by Knoop and the other by O'Malley. These were two studies that were continuing on a series of previous studies that have shown the potential correlation between HER2 expression and benefit from the use of an intracycline. And the question of whether HER2 would be essentially a pseudomarker for toporisomerate 2 gene alterations, both genes being adjacent to each other and the same applicant of chromosome 17. Topoisomerase 2-alpha is essential for DNA replication and recombination, and intracycline acting as a DNA intercalator could potentially have its effects being more meaningful in patients with TOPO2 alterations. The first study was a study by NOOP using a data set from a Danish study with 962 pre- and postmenopausal high-risk women that had been randomly allocated to receive nine cycles of CMF versus nine cycles of CEF every three weeks. And again, to their credit, we did a wonderful job in collecting tumor blocks and had it available in 84% of the patients. And uh, tumors were then assessed for TOPO2A alterations using FISH from using the DACO assay, and the primary endpoint had been relapse-free survival. What they did observe is that approximately 11% of these patients had TOPO2A deletions on the basis of a ratio less than 0.8 ratio of HER2 to the centromere of chromosome 17. And about 12% had amplification, which was a score greater than 2. So about 23% of these patients with TOPO2 aberrations, which usually correlated with number of lymph nodes, tumor size, premenopausal status, and ER negative status. When they try to put the circles together, what was noted is that in the Hirchin negative population, only about 8% had TOPO2A aberrations, deletion or amplification, while in the HER2 positive patients, 57% had TOPO2A aberrations. Looking the other way around, among the patients with TOPO2A aberrations, 78% had occurred in patients with HER2-positive disease and only 22% in patients with HER2-negative disease. What they did observe is that TOPO2 aberrations was associated with a worse prognosis, and they felt that this was by itself a prognostic factor. When they look into the predictive ability to identify patients that would benefit from treatments with CEF versus CMF, they observed that the predictive value was seen in patients with TOPO2A amplification, but only a trend in patients with deletion. 
The second study was another analysis from the database of the MA5 study comparing CF versus CMF. And in the study with 710 patients, they were able to construct tissue microarrays from a formalin-fixed paraffin-embedded tissue in about 450 or 63% of these patients. And they looked into topo 2 measurements using FISH again and using the same parameters that were used in the Danish study, using the same ratios. And what they did observe was that the hazard ratios by treatment CMF versus CEF versus TOPO2 status, they did observe a disease-free survival and an overall survival benefit for patients with TOPO2 deletions but with a hazard ratio for disease-free survival of 6.4 and overall survival of 18. But interestingly enough, they did not see a benefit for patients that had TOPO2 amplification. They also noted that patients with normal levels of TOPO2A, this was not predictive of any clinical benefit from the use of CF. What's going to happen next will be putting all these data together. These are two studies. There are at least two other studies out there with similar data sets that could potentially be combined and try to understand better what is the value of TOPO2A amplification or deletion in terms of trying to predict clinical benefits from intracyclines. And the obvious question is, how does that apply to what was presented by Dennis Slayman at the San Antonio meeting last year, showing that about a third of the patients with TOPO2 amplification, and potentially those being the patients that would benefit from the use of an intracycline trastuzumab regimen, and potentially patients who don't have TOPO2 amplification could be treated with a non-intracycline regimen containing trastuzumab and obtain clinical benefit. What's your take from these two presentations in terms of practical clinical applications, assuming the TOPO2 assay was available? I think it's not ready for prime time yet. I think these are very interesting. They are clearly promising information, but the results were a little bit unstable. As we saw in these two presentations, TOPO2 amplification was predictive for intracycline benefit in one study but not in another, and there were also evaluations for the first time being discussed of TOPO2 deletion. So I think we have to do some more work before this is ready for prime time. But we could foresee, if this turns out to be potentially useful, you could very well have at some point a fish assay that could test tumor specimens for both HER2 and TOPO2 in the same specimen. But it's early.